0: Testing, testing, one, two, three. This is my voice under the blanket. How does it sound now? Welcome back to The Willing Fool. I'm your host and lead fool, Paul Trimble. And today we're going to continue the conversation from the last episode, We focused on this promise, this statement by God in the early chapters of Genesis that there's going to be some sort of animosity, ongoing tension between the seed, the offspring, the children of this snake, and the seed, the offspring, the children of Eve that would be standing in for humanity. So that's a fascinating idea. We're going to continue to unpack it. And I don't want you to think that I am going off the rails and and, uh, proposing this. And so what I want to do today, this episode, is just walk you through uh, some of the scriptures that might be viewed in light of that thought and see if it makes sense as a whole. See if it seems to fit and make a cohesive picture. If not, of course, as always, you're free to just dismiss this idea as ridiculous and no harm, no foul. (laughs) But if it is irrelevant, then you may have gained something like a new lens through which to look at the scripture. And those can be very, very, very valuable, especially if you've gotten into a rut and you can only see things from one point of view. And maybe that point of view is not the only one or even the best one. So that's the motive. Anyway, so we, yes, we mentioned this, this curse, this promise of animosity between the seed of the snake and the seed of the woman. You might think, well, okay, see to the snake, you know, if if in fact the snake is representing this spiritual being, is that just other spiritual beings that have gone awry? And for the sake of this discussion, we want to consider the possibility that it can include not just spiritual beings, but people who follow the path of the snake, who follow in the snake's footsteps in some way or another. And of course, the snake in this scenario was calling into question the motive and intent of God was certainly fostering a lack of trust or a guardedness against God and wasn't working on in within God's agenda. But also, if any of our theorizing and speculating was right about the possible motive for that, maybe the snake didn't like humans too much or think too highly of humans or think that they were worthy of the special position that they were granted the proximity to God, the actual access to the divine council or the location of the divine council. And so if all that sounds unfamiliar, you might want to go back and re-listen to episode three. But if you're with me, then we'll just go on from there. So uh, immediately after these scenes in chapter four, you've got the scene with Cain and Abel, uh, which is well known, probably whether you know the Bible very well or not. And so one brother murdering another brother, obviously a lot different act than the taking of the fruit and eating it, though we might lump both into the category of sin. This one, you know, is a direct impact on another person. It's about as bad as you can imagine. It's murder from some sort of motivation. It seems like jealousy doesn't say that, but that's kind of what you might pick up reading between the lines. And so you might ask, well, is Cain, is Cain the first example of someone in this seed of the snake category that's, that's in tension with the seed of Eve? In that case, it's within a single family. And of course, talking about biblical characters, it might feel very far removed emotionally and like, okay, I can talk about this freely with no real impact on me emotionally. But but just imagine for a second that we're talking about someone that you know and love. We're talking about you or a family member or a close friend. And you wouldn't want to call someone a seed of the snake. There's a, I think, a good, healthy reticence, reluctance that we might have to saying, man, you're just, you're a snake-like person. You have followed the path of the snake and you're his Children, you're his offspring. Nobody. Well, I don't say nobody. Most of us don't really want to conclude that, or admit, or say that about another person, and maybe rightfully so. Um, we want to look at people as highly as we possibly can. We want to give the benefit of the doubt. We want to be gracious as people, and yet here's this idea that might not might not go away so easily. And if you look at Cain and his actions. It might be the first person about whom you could say, uh, is this person following the path of the snake? So we'll come back to that in a second. But if you go on, in my mind, it gets very, very fascinating to read more accounts in Genesis even and see some of the scenes that seem to be paralleling the scene in the garden. And so what I'm going to read to you is chapter 12. This is Abram before he becomes Abraham. And Sarai, before she becomes Sarah, and Abram's been called. At this point, he has gone to Egypt to avoid a famine, says there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister, so it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. He treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, and camels. goes on from there. And Obviously, aside from the very foreign, ancient, Near Eastern context that we don't really understand very well, here's just some things within the text itself that stand out in light of what we've been talking about. So, you've got Abram. He's been promised by God that there's a plan. God's working. God's doing something. And God seems to be like in control. He's going to take care of it. But Abram's in this famine situation, and that's no joke. And he's afraid. And he is trying to make his way and ensure his survival and that of his wife in Egypt. And so he says to Sarah, Hey, pretend to be my sister. So they will treat us well on your behalf because of your attractiveness, because of your beauty. They saw she was beautiful. And here's where it gets so interesting. They saw her praised her to Pharaoh. The one was taken to Pharaoh's household. So here's three things I heard. Saw the woman was beautiful saw her and took her in this kind of inappropriate scenario where she should have been off limits, but was taken even though she was off limits. Why? Because she was a beautiful looked good. And this should sound familiar because it's almost exactly the same language that's used in the garden with the fruit. It says, then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Seeing something as beautiful, taking it and in this case, giving it to someone else. So here in this scenario, you have a slightly rearranged replay of Genesis 3. And in this case, Sarai is playing the role of the, the fruit, forbidden fruit, and people are seeing and taking her. So Pharaoh is doing the role of, of Eve in this case. And what does that leave Abram? Abram's the one sending the message, "Hey, look at this, This is beautiful. You should it should be off limits in parentheses, but why don't you go ahead and take it anyway? Abram is playing the role of the snake. Now, we know, zooming out, we can see the totality of Abram's life, and in general, he played the role of trusting God, but in this scenario, Abram is falling voluntarily into the role of the snake. Later on, only a few chapters later, you have a similar thing, uh, where they're not having a child as they expect, even though God's promised it, and once again, they're going to uh, Abram and Sarah are going to take matters into their own hands. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. So Abram takes Hagar, again, should be off limits, and gave her to her husband, Abram. This is a similar language and similar scene to Eve taking the fruit and giving it to Adam when it should have been off limits. And if you notice in both of these cases, what results is horrendous. It's tragedy in, in both cases that it's things that eventuate that shouldn't, there's a plague in Egypt. And of course the whole thing with Hagar explodes into a generations long, uh, essentially interfamily strife or war. And so n- the curse eventuates from these situations that replay the scene with the snake. And in both cases, it's it's not a snake playing the role of snake, it's it's people, it's humans playing the role of snake. Well, I want to circle back to that Cain idea, because I'll be honest, I didn't just come up with that theory sort of out of thin air. In First John 3, this instance is, or Cain himself is referenced, and the context is people are being described as children, or literally seed, the word seed, of God, or children or seed of the devil. We should love one another, 1 John 3, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. It says here plainly that Cain was of the evil one. Does that mean he was a supernatural evil being? No, he was a human and by virtue of his choices, he was or became a child of the evil one an offspring or seed of the snake who was in tension with, in conflict with the seed of his mother, the seed of humanity, the seed of Eve, the living. Perfect example. And maybe the first outstanding example. This theme actually doesn't quit here though. It continues on in different forms In Luke 3, you have religious people flocking to John the Baptist. He says, you brood of vipers, vipers, snakes, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Matthew 23, Jesus says something similar to the religious folks, the God followers who were coming to him and he says you're you're a brood of vipers you snakes this idea of being a snake person an offspring of a snake the snake is there in Jesus's mouth there in John the Baptist's mouth in John 8 is he's having a a little interreligious person conflict he says you guys are children of the devil you say you're children of your father Abraham but you're you're children of the devil you're offspring of the evil one and so this thought is there of being a seed of the snake as a as a person and for me i think one of the things that it just makes me stop and think is how different that is than how we think in the church uh and i think Self-included, I, I, again, I, I'm, I'm very reluctant to, like, heartily put on this lens and go around looking for <laughs> snake people. That's not my desire. And yet, there is, in my mind as well, a spiritual reality to this, re- this possibility that people can be snake-like, can be, in effect, children of the snake, uh, snake people. And you might think, well, okay, sure, but that's the bad guys, right? Like the people who don't have any faith, just people wantonly killing people. I'm not sure. Like it would definitely include that group for sure. But I don't think the people in Matthew 23 or John 8 that were arguing with Jesus and who had the law and the temple and the Sabbath, I don't think that they thought that they were people of the snake. I think they thought we're... People who are following God, we're going to make sure that others follow God as well. We're going to, we're going to make sure people know what the rules are. We're going to make sure that they get enforced. And if people don't, we're going to make sure that they know that they're on the outside. This is, that's kind of the MO of, I think, a lot of the people that Jesus applied this language to. And I don't know, I just, there's got to be a reality there that is, meaningful in some way. Or I don't think Jesus would have said that. I don't think that this language would be applied by people like John the Baptist or in the book of John. And I I just have to continue to think what's behind that then. In Revelation 20, there is a passage that addresses the snake, the ancient serpent, as it's called. And I want to read it to you. Actually, I'm going to read Revelation 12. There is a similar passage in Revelation 20. But in Revelation 12, the snake is referenced and identified. And notice what it says about about him. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come, because the accusers of our brothers has been thrown out. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown out the one who accuses them before our God day and night. So here you have referenced the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And I should mention that throughout the entirety of the scriptures, these images weren't always put together in exactly this way. So it looks a little different at different stages in history and at different stages of the scripture. But here, all those images are put together. And this figure being referenced, how is he described? He's the accuser of our brothers, the one who accuses them. And I'm going to attempt to tie these things we've been talking about in the last few episodes together because in Genesis 1 through 3, again, I mentioned that I think for most people growing up Bible believing or church going or both, The import of that is how bad man is, how unworthy, how sinful, how we've got this sin problem we need to deal with. And I don't, I don't want to minimize large element of truth there, but if that's all we can see in Genesis one to three, and we miss, we miss the high calling, the incredible desire of God to have people, humans, proximate, high access, high intimacy in the inner workings in, in the divine council and the extremely high vocation and view that God has of humanity, then the emotional resonance of that is simply of unworthiness, of dirtiness, of, of sinfulness, without <laughs> the couching really good stuff that's what you would hope a God would see in you, what you would hope a parent would see in you, anyone that knows you and sees you and believes the best about you would believe in you. You you see the negative but you don't see the couching positive that it should be nested within. And as well as you might not catch that here's this spiritual being who maybe he doesn't agree with God. Maybe he doesn't think that humans are up for this. He doesn't think that they deserve a seat at the inner table the inner chamber the seat of power the divine council why why would you let them in there they're not worthy look at them look what they're doing look at who they are look at their flaws look at their weaknesses you think they you think they are up for this you think they deserve this actually the word satan or satan does not start off as a proper name. I mean, I think eventually it sort of gets used that way in scripture, but but originally it's just a it's just a word that means accuser or opposer, adversary. Think of it as like a a prosecuting attorney in a courtroom scene. It's the person who's dead set to convict you and show why you deserve something bad, something some punishment. Well, that's the role that a person a being labeled the satan the adversary the opposer plays in job when god is parading job and saying look at him he's righteous he's he's everything i hoped a person would be and the accuser who i'm not saying is the satan in terms of this kind of lead figure of the divine realm his job is to say well are you sure god like is he really that good i mean isn't it just because he blessed him and what if you take all that away he's probably going to just turn on you and there's this adversarial role. There's like a defense attorney and God's in the role of defense attorney and there's this prosecuting attorney and the the accuser rightfully is in that role. And it's hard to ignore sort of the relational emotional components of this that what character seems to characterize the Satan as he comes to be understood is this sort of lead evil divine realm figure that's opposing God one of the things that characterizes him is he doesn't really think much of people. He doesn't believe in them. I mean, I'm sure he believes they exist and that they have sin, but that's, that's I think, kind of where it goes. Like, that's who we are. We're, we're, we're just people full of flaws and undeserving, kind of unworthy and twisted. Now, the crazy thing is, that, I think, is often at the center of what is called the good news in church. I realize that's a pretty harsh, stunning thing to say, but I don't, I'm going to stand by it. I've heard this a lot and I have felt the emotional resonance and I've seen it register in other people. And it could be very easy for the thing that the the Satan really believes and characterizes him to be mistakenly substituted for the thrust of the message of the scriptures. Which is that God has said that we are effectively worthy. Are we worthy in ourselves? Of course not. So I know I know even saying that is going to make people cringe to say we're worthy, but not, we're not worthy, but God, but God treats us like we're worthy. So we're worthy because he treats us like we're worthy. That's how it works. And if we don't communicate that, if we don't understand and communicate that, then I don't think that we're understanding and communicating the reality about who God is and about what the story is. The whole story continues to be, God is going to, and we'll impact this in a future episode, but God is going to work this out. So his original desire and plan to have people, humans, within his tight inner circle, the divine council, helping him to rule part of who he is and what he's doing, he's still going to work that out. Because he still wants that and believes that and thinks that it's possible and is going to make sure that it happens. And I think sometimes in our our desire to honor God, we actually betray that message. And instead, what we're believing and communicating is something closer aligned to what the Satan is all about. Again, that's a crazy thing to say, but... If you think that that might be true, then you start to look at Matthew 23 and John 8 and Luke 3 and these passages where Jesus is calling the most religious people of his day, those sent to make sure that God gets honored, to make sure that God gets his due, to make sure that people understand that they are bad and God is good and they better be better or else why Jesus might call them brood of vipers. Sons of the devil. Seems like kind of a big deal. I'm not sure how often we think about how that might be true now. Like How might those same dynamics play out now? But I I, I think we should. I don't think we can afford not to consider it. And to, to think deeply about these scriptures in totality, the mosaic, the picture that they paint. Not just isolated scriptures, but the totality, the whole thing. Zoom in, zoom out, look at the whole thing. Does it does it cohere? Does the picture cohere together? I think it's a good place to end for today. Next episode, I want to I want to continue to actually trace through this plot and this view of the plot and these characters through more scriptures so that you can hopefully see and hear how this is not just like an isolated passage here or there or some kind of random marginal theme or motif. It's not that. (laughs) It's very interwoven into the story itself and into how we might view God and how god is viewing us and therefore how we should view ourselves and our role in that story i mean that's what that's what reading and studying the bible is literally all about so it's worth our time it's worth our effort and it's worth our energy so that's what we're gonna do in the next episode